So we're in a series. I don't know how to transition out of that. We're in a series on uh, the book of John. We've been looking at this, and, and I want to tell you, um, I, I may have mentioned this before, this is, um, this is rocking my world. God has just been dealing with me. Is, this is not me up here preaching, teaching down to you like the learner and the students or the expert. It, it is not. I am learning right alongside you. Uh, basically, what I'm often teaching is just what God has taught me and how God has worked in my life in this. And so um, we're talking about this idea uh, in this in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, of soul thirst, of the deep thirst that every person has uh, in the innermost parts of their life. And I'm going to read these uh, 1 through 15. It's a little bit of a long one, but uh, you can follow along. Uh, you can listen, or you can, if you have your Bible, or it's on your, uh, on, you have an app, you can look, look at that also. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be, become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. All right, so we have this conversation that's happening. There's a lot here, and it's probably not going to surprise most of you that we really need to dig a little bit into cultural and historical information to understand what's going on here. John understands that he's writing to people who may not know all of that, so he gives them hints along the way. He saw that in the parenthesis it said, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's him kind of telling us there's a problem between these people. It's he understates it, let me tell you. He understates it. But I was thinking about this in terms of soul thirst because I remember, unfortunately, I remember this happening. Uh, I was well aware as it happened. In 1990, the, the, uh, the Perrier water was the most popular bottled water in the whole world by far. Perrier had kind of started the whole idea of sparkling water and bottled water, and, and they by far dominated the industry. Almost like 75% of the industry was Perrier water. And in 1990, in North Carolina, a chemist doing routine checks of water and other things came across excess benzene in some Perrier. Now, benzene is a carcinogen, and so it's, it was well above the recommended level. And so he tested another bottle, and then he tested another bottle, and then all of a sudden, he realized this is from different batches. So he raised the alarm. And it started in the U.S., this wave of people. People refused to buy uh, Perrier. Perrier realized they had to recall their water. They recalled 
uh, $72 million worth of bottled water from the United States of America, which back, back then, $72 million was really worth something, not like now, right? So they, they and, and it spread, though. The rest of the world started testing it and found there was benzene in the water, excess levels of benzene in the water. So Perrier recalled every bottle of Perrier in the world, ceased production for three months, almost went bankrupt until they finally traced what was the problem. The, the source, and, and it doesn't help that Perrier used to advertise themselves as perfect water, which is like putting a label on a bottle saying, please sue me, right? If it's just not perfect, you can sue them for false advertising. So, so everybody held Perrier to this high standard, and they, they found out because the source of Perrier is an underground spring, and they would pipe it directly from that underground spring, and no human hands was supposed to have touched it. You know, it was supposed to be this incredibly pure water. Turned out that one person who was supposed to be working with filters put a filter in backwards, forgot to rechange it, and all of a sudden this excess benzene was getting into the system that way. The source got polluted, and it made everything that came out of the source undrinkable. Jesus today is going to talk about something. He's going to talk about our heart In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It is the source of life. It is the fountain of life. Guard your heart. And Jesus is going to talk about a heart. He's going to talk about it. He's going to talk about it and use different words for it. But biblically, the heart is the core of your being. That's the way they thought of it back then. It is the center of your thoughts. It is where your feelings originate. It is where your motivations. It's where your worldview originates. It's where your understanding of everything originates is your heart. So you see the heart, biblically speaking, is the key to everything. It is the source. It is the fountain. And Christianity is getting a new spring, a new fountain, a new source in our heart. Because our heart is polluted. Our heart is the problem as we go. And so I want you to see, um, first of all, we're going to talk about the divine mission. And this is what I mean by that. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. All right? So Jesus is leaving. We don't know exactly why. We have these hints there. The Pharisees are hearing. They seem to be upset. It may be that Jesus is saying it's not time yet to confront and, and make the, the absolute decision about my ministry, accept me or reject me. He does that three years later, basically, two and a half years later. And so he realizes, I guess, possibly, and this is, you know, our sanctified imagination, just guessing at things. He decided to go back to, back uh, up into Galilee and, and minister there. He's leaving all these big crowds that he's gathered. He's become very popular. And he decides to go to another area, possibly because the time of confrontation has not come yet, or just simply because God told him to go. It could be as simple as that. Because Jesus said multiple times, he's only doing the will of his Father. And this sets something up for the rest of the passage. I want to pull up a map here, and I, I hope you guys can see this fairly well. I don't, know, I don't know if you can for here or at home. But you see, there's kind of a red area. That's Galilee. Below that is a purple area. Okay, that's where the Samaritans live, Samaria. And then a blue area, that's Judea, where Jerusalem is. And if you can see it, 
there's two red lines, and along the right-hand side, there's a green line. All right? These were the main roads to get from south to north or vice versa. The red line in the middle was the direct route, but it went directly through Samaria. On the right-hand side, that red line was more of an indirect route, but it still dipped into Samaria sometimes. On the right-hand side is a red line. That was the route that Jews took to go. It took twice as long. Instead of two to three days, it took, it took five or six days. It took twice as long, and it was a much less developed route to reach Judea. Now, why did Jews do that? Any Jew who was, who was serious about worshiping God, cleanliness, being the kind of Jew he should be, took that red route. In fact, from Jerusalem at the bottom, kind of branching up to the right, is the road to Jericho, it's called. That's where the story of the Good Samaritan happens. The Good Samaritan was probably going up to Jericho and then dipping into the eastern half there, the right-hand side of, of Samaria. And so the disciples would have fully expected Jesus to take the red road, the one that goes far across. It goes through the uh, just a worse part of the of the country, but it's the road that serious Jews took. The the red road was the road for apostates and for rebels. And so we get this. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. That's in the middle red road there. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now notice something there. It says he had to go. But really, he didn't have to go. Most Jews took the red road, the far side. That's what his, his, his disciples would have expected. That's, I mean, it's not like they'd be going, is he going to go that way? Is he gonna go? No, they'd be like, no, this is the only option. This is the only option for us because we're serious about following God. We have no option here. And so Jesus did not have to go that way. He had another option. It was about two and a half days right through the middle there, but Jesus cho chose to take that road. They often would travel that hot desert road because of the terrible prejudice that existed between Samaritans and Jews. It's interesting. The Lord cuts right through ignorant, narrow-minded prejudice, and he goes through Samaria because he just has already told us that he came to seek and to save the lost to seek and to save the lost. He did not come to seek and save the likable, the worthy, the good, because if he had, no one would get saved. And so where it says he had to go, it's interesting, the Greek word there is de, okay? It's often translated must. When we hear Jesus say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. There's no other option. He uses that word de. When uh, he says the Son of Man must be lifted up, must be lifted up to the cross, he uses that word. That Greek word is from the word deo. I'm going into it a little bit, but it means to bind. It means to constrain. In other words, if you tie someone up, they have no option to do anything they want to do, only what you allow them to do. If you have bound them, they're under your control. This is that word. Jesus really did have no choice. 
It was a divine necessity for him to go through Samaria, and he obeyed. We have to be people who obey. Sometimes God prompts us to do things that seem crazy. We have to obey. Sometimes God wants us to do things that other people will not understand. We have to obey. Um, years ago, I was driving down the road, and it just, this doesn't happen very often, but somebody was just walking, and I mean, it's, it was, it's not a voice, all right? It's not a voice, but it's such a strong prompting, because I'm not even thinking about it. I'm just driving down the road, and it's, Bob, go back and see if that person needs a ride. Go back and see if that person needs a ride. And, and I'm going, I'm like, that's crazy. He's probably just going to the 7-Eleven. It's right there. That's, and finally I said, okay, <clears throat> I'm going to do it, God. I'm going to do it. I turned around, went back, came in, pulled over, said to the guy, would you like a ride? And he said, no. And he walked off. <laughs> and I was like, and I just realized, okay, are you willing? Are you just willing? See, we have to ask ourselves that. Am I willing? It doesn't mean something crazy is going to happen. It just means, am I willing? Am I willing to walk with him? Am I willing to follow him? And so we have this divine mission that Jesus is on. He obeyed. He went to a place called Jacob's Well. Jacob's Well is still there, and you can still get water from it. You can look it up. It's still there. It was there 4,000 years ago, and it is there today, still, still having water. So we see the divine mission. Now, I want you to see the next thing. So then, what's the, who does God love? We just looked at John 3.16, for God so loves the world. So Jesus is going to put that into action. He's going to illustrate who does God love. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. All right. So the Jews considered all the people of the whole world to be Gentiles and unclean, but the Samaritans were a whole nother level of badness to them. All right. There were numerous reasons about this. And so we need to look just for a moment, this is going to be for a moment, at who are the Samaritans? We hear this name. If you've read your Bible, you hear this name all the time. But if you ever stop to think, well, who really are these people? How did they become to be so hated? How did, how did it come so the Jews, where the Jews hated them and they hated the Jews? It was reciprocal, okay? This, this was an equal opportunity hatred that was going on here. So we have to look a little bit at the cultural, the historical background. Samaria used to be a part of Israel. It used to be, it, it was the tribe of Ephraim, it was a half-tribe of Manasseh, it was part of the ten tribes of northern Israel. So it was all part of Israel. David ruled all of them. And what happened? The, the uh, invasion, the Assyrians came and around 700 B.C., somewhere in that area, and, and they conquered that part of 
Israel, the northern part of Israel. And what they would do then is to subjugate a land, they would take a big percentage of the people out, 30, 40, 50% of the people away from the land as captives and spread them out in other parts of, of their conquered territories, often, you know, in thousands of miles away. And then they would bring people from other parts of conquered territories and put them in the land. And that was their way of subjugating and keeping people from rallying. Because what happens is all those new people come in. They don't like the people who live there. People who live there didn't like those new people. So no one could, could form in a revolution because they were all at each other's throats anyways. But you know what would happen after a while? They'd start to intermarry. They'd start to, they'd start to, to spread. They'd start to, and all those things would be forgotten. But all these different religions would get mixed in. So the Samaritans had a combination of religion that was some partly idolatry and it was partly monotheism. They believed the first five books of the Old Testament, just the first five, none of the rest. They believed that Mount Gerizim, which was right by Sychar, is a mountain close by, was the place God wanted people to worship, not Jerusalem, right? The Jews considered that heresy. So there were numerous times, little border skirmishes, battles. But then one time, about 128 B.C., the Jews gathered an army, marched into Samaria, marched and killed the people at Mount Gerizim, and then destroyed the temple, raised the whole place, and marched back to Israel. You know, they're like, we're doing God's work, right? They did something that was horrific, and that invited retaliation. The Samaritans tried to come and desecrate the temple in Jerusalem, and it just was back and forth. So there was this hatred. There was this sense that Samaritans were half-breeds because they were a mixed race. So that was the worst thing the Jews could think of. In fact, the worst insult a Jew could give to another Jew is, you're a Samaritan. You remember they said that to Jesus, right? They said, tell us if we're wrong. You're a Samaritan, and you're demon-possessed. You notice which one they thought was worse. Samaritan was the first thing they said. They said, man, you're, you're demon-possessed, but that's not the worst. You're a Samaritan. So understand then this visceral, this visceral hatred and distrust. They lived next to each other. There was cross-border trade at times, but there was always this sense of, you're not us, we hate you. On both sides. So Jesus taking this middle road is incredible. I mean, the disciples must have just been dumbstruck. They can't believe it. They can't believe what they're doing, which may be why they were good on the idea of Jesus. You stay here by the well where no one's at. We'll go into town and get some food, right? They're ready that this may end up in a fight, and it's, it's noon, so no one comes to a well in the heat of the day, so Jesus is safe there. That may be a, been part of what they were thinking. This is why the parable of the Good Samaritan is such a shocker to Jews. Because they would have never believed in their life that a Samaritan was capable of being kind to a Jew. It's not in them because they're not one of us. So when this woman comes to the well, she's astounded. See, we've got to get a feeling for this. She's astounded that Jesus even spoke to her. She's so astounded that she does something she wouldn't normally do. She speaks back. She answers him. Because she, she says, you're a Jew. 
How are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. Not only that, I'm a Samaritan woman. Jews don't talk to women. Any woman, even Jewish women, they don't talk, talk to very much unless they know them. So she's astounded by this. She's basically saying, aren't you not allowed to do this? Is this against your rules? So you think of this. To me, this is what I get out of this. I think about this. Think of the barriers that Jesus broke down to meet this woman. There's a religious barrier. There's a cultural barrier. She knows right off he's a Jew because they dressed differently. They advertised who they were by the way they dressed. She knew it right off. There's a sexual barrier. She's a woman. He's a man. We don't talk. There's a moral barrier. Jesus was a righteous rabbi. She was not, to say the least, uh, which is probably why she's there in the middle of the day. Because all the women come early in the cool of the morning to get water, and then they come in the afternoon as the sun is setting to get water for the evening. She doesn't want to be with all the other women. Why? You know this, but we'll get to it in the next sermon, the depth of this. You know, you think, I was thinking about this. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. In John 4, Jesus meets this woman in the middle of the day. Think about those two people that Jesus treated equally. Nicodemus is every parent's dream, all right? You kids here, your parents won't admit it to you, but I'm going to tell you, if you're smart like Nicodemus, you're moral like Nicodemus, you're rich like Nicodemus, you're powerful like Nicodemus, you're very religious, you're dedicated like Nicodemus, you are every parent's dream. The woman at the well is not every parent's dream. She's poor. She's not educated. She's not rich. She's got a very shady background. No parent, when their child is little, says, man, I hope my little girl grows up and sells her body to every jerk that can scrape up enough money to violate her. That's my dream. No parent says, I hope my little boy grows up and has a family, but is so, so into his work that he neglects his children and they grow up stunted emotionally and they grow up with tremendous problems because they had an absentee father who didn't care about them. Nobody says that. Nope. Nobody hopes that for their kid. And this is a brilliant thing that Jesus is doing. This is an amazing thing that Jesus is doing. He just met with the cream of society, Nicodemus. And he told him, sorry, dude, everything you got, worthless. You must day. You have no other options. You must be born again. And now he meets with the bottom of society, the least of these. And he treats her like an equal. He speaks to her. He asks her for a favor. She's astounded. We, we got to see this. She is astounded by this. No man has ever, probably ever spoken to her this way because of the way that culture, the way things were in those days. In any culture in the world, and we tend to think that those things are all past now, 
we're all past that. The way those types of things. But really we aren't. Really we aren't. Studies show that if a man and a woman make the same job, the woman makes 22% less money than the man on average. The other day, we had somebody over to our house that we have a thing in our kitchen, we have a problem in our kitchen that needs to be fixed. And uh, my wife had contacted this guy and talked to him about what we needed. And so he said, I'll come by. She says, okay, my husband and I will be there. So he, he's coming up and we're, we're both in the door. I open the door and he walks right past my wife and says, Mr. Mosley, good to meet you. I'm so-and-so. And I was just like, hey, yeah. So we go into our kitchen. He goes, what do you need? And I said, okay, this is what we're looking at. This is what we're thinking. This is where the problem is, blah, 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 blah like that. And he's like, yep, 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 yep. Uh, we can do that. This, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden my wife, she's looking at me and I noticed, wow, she's really staring at me. I must be handsome, <laughs> you know. Uh, she looks at me. She looks at him and she goes, okay, now I'm going to talk and this is what I want in my kitchen. And I'm like, yes, yes, of course. (laughs) I was just planning to hand the microphone to you, dear. Um, And I thought for a second there. I'm studying how Jesus breaks down barriers and I perpetuate one without even hardly thinking about it, because it's so natural. I wish I could, I was thinking, I wish I could just disappear right now, just melt into the floor. Jesus treats everybody the same, regardless of the barriers that we erect, regardless of the barriers that our culture erects, Jesus treats everyone the same. Our sinfulness manifests itself in barriers, in walls we build. And God hates barriers. He hates them. And as Christians, we should be at the forefront of demolishing the barriers that culture, society, this world erects. We should be the lead. All the barriers that Jesus broke, we're to be the people that break those same barriers as we find them in our culture. However they manifest themselves, they can be barriers in so many, so many ways. Barriers because of status, barriers because of race, barriers because of gender, barriers, whatever it is, we should be the people who break those barriers because Jesus breaks those barriers. And we're supposed to be following him. And so, this point here, we're asking, who does God love? And he's illustrating, I love everyone. I love from the top to, in a sense, the bottom. And it's not the top to the bottom because they're both equal in my eyes. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything is possible when Jesus is involved. That's why we say that. Because Jesus lived it. So then the question becomes, are you willing to be, to do the hard work of breaking barriers? You know, I said sometimes God calls us to do things that are not popular. Let me tell you something. You start breaking barriers, you're going to get pushed back. You start pushing on things that are settled in society, you're going to get pushed back. You're going to get people who are going to react. It's just what living for Christ means in our lives. And the question is, are we willing? 
Are you willing to reach the least of these? Are you willing to reach those that you wouldn't naturally reach? Because Jesus, as a practicing religious Jew, would never be caught dead by the well in Sychar. Never. And he went. Why? Because God told him, this is the way you have to go. Don't take the way all, all Jews take. Take the Samaritan way. Go to Sychar. And I don't know if God told Jesus ahead of time, but God's plan is there's a woman there that you're going to run into. It's going to be, what a coincidence, right? And it's the planning and the hand of God to change a nation. We have to think sometimes. God sometimes calls us to do things. And the repercussions of those things, we can't sometimes even imagine. Jesus is just reaching one woman. But we see how that works out. We see it in this chapter, but then we see it also in the book of Acts. Philip, the evangelist, goes to Samaria and has this incredible ministry there. One of the earliest churches that we have ever found in the history of the world is in Samaria. So, we have this, uh, the divine mission. He must go. Who does God love? Everyone, even the ones who society says are the least. And then we have living water. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said, she said, how can you, don't you understand? Are you a dope, right? And he says on God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you his living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? All right. So Jesus is very interesting. She's coming to the well for water. She didn't come for salvation. Jesus meets her where she's at. He engages her with what's on her mind. He just tweaks it and starts leading it in a direction. He's brilliant at that. He starts there. He develops the conversation. She's intrigued that he's interested in a drink. And then he tells her something, he tells her something that's key. If you knew the gift of God, right? He says, this is a gift. You don't earn this. It's the word doria. And it, the word actually means a bountiful free gift, which is bestowed freely without price or compensation. It's where we get, you know, if you know somebody whose name is Doris, that's where we get that word. Doris means gift. He says, if you knew this gift, it's free, it's bountiful, there's no compensation. You don't do anything for it. It just gets handed to you. This gift of God, it's living water. Now, we have to understand something. In Jewish times, in those times, they had living water, and then they, they had, it would be still water. Like living water is from a, 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 a stream or it's from a spring, and it's considered to be very pure. Standing still water is not as pure. A well, even if it's supplied by a spring, the spring usually is very deep, like Jacob's well, very deep. So the top water has been there for a while. At a well, there's always a problem. Animals, oftentimes, that get very thirsty fall in trying to get a drink. And so the well can get polluted. 
So there are oftentimes were people who would come in and they'd scoop out whatever was in there to get get it out of the well so the water would be pure. So living water was coming right out of a spring, very fresh. You know it's pure. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, God is referred to as living water. The Holy Spirit is referred to uh, a a number of times as living water. And and, uh, even here, you can experience that here. Uh, This is a great place to live if you like history. If you go over to the Yorktown battlefield and you take the driving tour, you'll come to a place that says it's Washington's headquarters, where George Washington had his headquarters. And he tells you on the plaque, he's picked this place because there's a spring. It's still there. I used to ride bikes with people, and we would stop at that spring and fill our water bottles because it's pure, clean water. And that's what the Jews would call living water. God was compared to as that. In fact, in Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn for themselves cisterns, their own water. And he says, these cisterns are broken. They hold no water. They leak. They're worthless. They've chased things that are worthless instead of me because I'm the living water. In those days, you had to carry a, 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 a water skin with you everywhere you went. You would carry a water skin because most wells didn't have a bucket. They'd get stolen in no time. So you had to have a water skin and a roll of twine. It would look, uh, there's one right there. That's about what it would look like. You'd lower it in, let it fill up with water, pull it out. Now you, now you have your water. So she looks at him, she goes, you know, she looks at him, she goes, you're kind of dopey. You don't even have a skin. You don't even have anything for water. You're not real well prepared. Now, probably, probably the disciples did, but they went into town, right? And so in John 7, we, we see that living water refers to the Holy Spirit coming to, into a person at the time of salvation. It dwells in us. She's not following along very well, so she falls into what I call the religious label trap. Um, she says... Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it, and drank it from, drank from it himself, as all, as did also his sons and his livestock? See what she's doing? She's going back. Well, you know, <laughs> this is Jacob's well. We're the Jacob people. We're we're yeah, Jacob, Jacob. He's our man, right? They're they're for Jacob because he's their man. He's their guy, right? It's like all the time now. Churches people label themselves. I, I, I get this all the time, and I don't mind because people are having to find out. They're trying to know. They just say, what kind of church are you? And I want to tell you the temptation to go off on that. We're crazy. We are crazy. <laughs> Be, protect yourself. if you, you know. I just want to say something silly like that. Because what happens? We label. And so in 13 and 14, Jesus doesn't fall for the labeling. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, he doesn't let her sidetrack. I find this sometimes when I'm talking to people. You know, I'll be talking to somebody uh, about Jesus, and they'll say, yeah, but what about? And I say, okay, well, you know what? We'll get to that. Let's just focus right now on me and you and Jesus. You know, what about the people in, you know, 
And then, and then after I've gone through that, I'll tell them, now, one of the things you said, I, I'm willing to talk about that if you want to talk about it, or I'll, I'll, I'll research it, and I'll send you some information if you want some information on it. I'd be happy to do that. But I don't, I don't want it to distract me from the main purpose. Jesus doesn't get distracted here. And he does something that's very interesting. Everyone who drinks this water, now that word drinks in the Greek is in the present tense, continually drinking, continually drinking. Everyone who drinks from this well is going to get thirsty again. So you have to continually drink from this well. But, verse 14, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. All right? That word, drinks, is in what's called the aorist tense. The aorist tense is a tense that means something happens at a point in time and the effects last for the rest of their life. Different words. You see how those words are different. So he's saying, you're going to come to this well. Oh, you're going to always get thirsty. It will never quite finish your thirst. It will for a little bit, and then you'll be thirsty again. But what I want to give you is something that lasts for the rest of your life. It lasts forever. It's eternal life. And so he gives, he gives it. A, and and it, it brings into mind a group that I think is um, very, uh, well, they're a great theological group. I like them. It's called the Rolling Stones. They're sometimes known as the band of the walking dead, because if you've ever seen the Rolling Stones lately, you know what I mean. And they had a great song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. When I'm watching my TV, I just want to sound like Mick Jagger, right? But I can't. And a man comes on and tells me how white my shirts should be. He says, somebody comes and tells me how I'm supposed to look. But he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. He's not smoking Marlboro Man cigarettes. He's not this tough guy. He's smoking whatever, sissy cigarettes, whatever, whatever they think it is. So what happens? It tells me how I'm supposed to look. It tells me what I'm supposed to do. It tells me what I'm supposed to smoke. It tells me how I'm supposed to be. The TV does that. He says, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. They hit the nail on the head. What is he saying? I've got a thirst that nothing quenches. I've got a thirst in my soul. I've got a thirst in my heart. And all this stuff doesn't do it. And later he taught, you know, I'm trying to hook up with this girl and this and this and this, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Even people who don't know Jesus know about this. To thirst and never be satisfied. It pushes us to look at the condition of our world. Jesus offers something that will slake our thirst, our cravings. He tells us that if we lower our bucket into any other thing, if we lower our bucket into any other pursuit, any other cause, any other relationship, any other comfort, whatever it is, anything other than me, he says, you will thirst. It's like when you're incredibly thirsty I don't know, this is what happens for me. You drink a soda and you're full because it fills you up, but you're still thirsty because it doesn't quench it. It's funny. If you ask someone in our world if they're happy, oftentimes they will say, of course I am. They'll say, I have a good job or I have a good husband. I have a good wife. I have this good relation, this great relationship. I have a good house. I have good kids. I take great vacations. Yes, but are you happy? I'm not talking about momentary bursts of, of, of joy or happiness or gratification or whatever. I'm talking about through the course of your life. 
Because at some point, we begin to sense that something is wrong. Great musicians have written about it. Great writers have written about it. Albert Camus in the fall says, because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. In the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. It was short-lived. He goes on to say, there are moments of bliss and then there are long stretches of depression, long stretches of, of feeling unused and no purpose and worthless And so what does he do? He says, I medicate myself in short bursts in the desert. And this is a desert land. Water is life. Everyone knows that. Psalm 1 is centered around that, about the righteous man. And what does it say? He's like a tree planted by streams of water, planted by a spring. When you're in the desert and you see a tree or a stand of trees, that means there's water there. One of the times, first times we went to Arizona early on when we were taking teenagers to Arizona, we were driving along and it was just desolate. It's like the moon. It's like the surface of the moon, that part of Arizona where these people live. It's just desolate. And I was with a guy and uh, all of a sudden I saw three or four green trees. I said, what's the deal there? He goes, oh, there's a spring there. He said, you can always tell there's a spring because there's trees. I'm like, oh, I guess that's handy in the desert. Yeah. Jesus says he has what we need. It will quench our thirst, the thirst of our soul. So it strikes me, what is the thirst of our soul? Well, it's it's a number of things. Here's just a few. There's a thirst for purpose. We're told there is no God and you are here just by accident. But accidents by nature have no purpose. You can take an accident and make a purpose out of it, but it comes into being with no purpose. No rhyme, no reason. And so people will say, it's silly to think of an overarching, a big idea of purpose or meaning in your life. And God says, wrong. You have purpose. You have direction. You are part of a grand plan to revolutionize the world. That's your purpose. Another thing it brings is that we have um, a thirst for love. There's all these codependency books out there telling us, um, basically, for many of them, they're telling us we didn't get the love we needed when we were a child. And, and I'm, this, I'm not mocking, okay? So don't, don't take this wrong because it's true. We needed and we still need someone in our life. And they'll tell us, you need someone who's available, someone who's accepting, someone who's patient, someone who's wise, someone who's committed to your growth, someone who is not self-absorbed. You know what? I read one of those books when I was a father. I still am. (laughs) Gosh. When my kids were little, it was the most depressing book because I look at them and go, oh, I'm not always available. I'm not always accepting. I'm not patient all the time. I'm no, I'm not wise. I'm, I'm not always, and I am, can be so self-absorbed. I am crap as a father. Oh man. You know, it just, it just made me, why? Because no one can be that. It's impossible. There's no one like that on this earth. What do we need? We need a heavenly father whose arms are open wide, who is always available and accepting, patient and wise and committed to your growth and not self-absorbed. 
He's completely welcoming. He's totally accepting. Never selfish. He does not put his feelings first. He wants to see you grow and progress, and he loves you dearly. There is a creator God who is also a loving father that you can know through Jesus Christ, and he is the answer for your thirst for love. The third one is the peace in your conscience. We have a thirst for peace. Everyone struggles with guilt. Everyone can struggle with guilt. And you can go to a counselor. You can go to a friend. You can go to a relative. You can go to your barber. You can go to a bartender. And you can tell them, I feel guilty. And generally what they will say is, you shouldn't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty. You're a good person. You know what? You're nice. Don't feel guilty. You're not guilty. But the logical answer to that is, how do you know I'm not guilty? I'm the one feeling it. There must be a reason I feel guilty. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ. He took care of our guilt and our shame on the cross. No more guilt, no more shame. So we see that salvation is a gift. It's a water. It's asking Jesus to be the center of your life. You may not totally understand what this is about, but if you know you need a new spring, if you know you need a new source, you give yourself to him. Now, if you know Jesus, if you say, well, Bob, I've done that, walking with him is also a gift. You may be discouraged at your life right now. Let me give you a clue. Stop throwing junk in the spring. Stop throwing crap in the well. That will really help. Now, I know that's easy to say. So the second part of that is this. Trust God. Jesus said, I will Finish the work I have begun in you. Hebrews says Jesus is the author, the beginning, and the finisher, the end of our faith. He walks with us. Trust him. Now, next week, we're going to see this incredible story now as it plays out and the response and what God does. What happens when a thirsty person drinks? the living water. And we will look at that and grow from that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, that it is true. And we have this story where you directed Jesus to do something that would change thousands of people's lives for eternity. Starting with one. Lord, help us be willing to follow your direction. Help us be willing to walk with you. And thank you, Lord, that you want to walk with us. It is your joy to be with us. And we praise you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, thanks for being here. Thanks for those at home that are joining us as we stream, those that will watch this later in the week for the recording on our website. We appreciate it. We do not um, take it for granted, you being here. And uh, we're thankful that God is working in so many people. I get to hear stories that are just awesome and uh, be a part of them. And uh, it is what God is doing. So thanks for coming. God bless you. And you are dismissed.